Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the uh, the room under whatever conditions, Lord. We make uh, so much of small things sometimes, and it's just a reflection of how much you've blessed us and how much we have grown accustomed to the comforts you give us every day in this part of the world. And uh, it's also a good opportunity, Father, to remember how many others in the world have so much less, and yet they endeavor to uh, study and to gather and to praise your name in, in small groups around the world. And they do so, Father, under much different circumstances, and, uh, and they think nothing of it. Because they join together in, in something that is eternal and they're lifted up by it and their circumstances are immaterial. And we know the same is true here, Father, though sometimes it's easy to overlook that. So we thank you, Father, for what may, may be just a small reminder of the fact that uh, our comfort and our, and our satisfaction, our joy is in you and not in the creature comforts of our life. Lord, thank you as well for the teaching tonight, for what's in your word and waiting for us for important things, for eternal things, things that will comfort us in eternal ways. We thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's return to the Passover night meal of Jesus and the disciples, which, by the way, is now a group of 11 after the departure of Judas last week. He had been dismissed, you remember, in verse 30 of chapter 13, by Christ, so that he might go and betray Christ. And, in fact, Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly, Some might have taken that as a command on Jesus's part to Judas, that Judas would then go and betray him, which, if that were the case, would be a bit odd, to say the least. It might even seem to exonerate Judas at some level. How ironic that he would be obedient to the Lord whom he's about to betray. But in any event, this is not what it means. Simply, Jesus dictated the moment of Judas's departure. He did not command him to depart. In fact, the words are very carefully chosen. He says, what you do, do quickly. The timing is important, though, because... Jesus is about to offer the disciples some of the most important and most personal teaching of his entire time with them in ministry, teaching that would only be appropriate for his true sheep, not for wolves, not for imposters. And so the one amongst them who is not of them is dismissed so that the rest can then have true fellowship in the time that remains. A kind of simple moment of confirmation of what Paul teaches when he says, what of what does light and darkness have in common? Nothing. And so they must be separated. So we go back into the upper room. This is, again, Wednesday night on the week of Passover, the night before Jesus dies. Verse 31 of chapter 13. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews... Now, I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, we begin in verse 31 and beginning here in this verse and running all the way until the end of chapter 16. You have what's commonly called the upper room discourse. Jesus, in this period of time, will do a number of things, talk about a number of things. We'll have several weeks, of course, to go through it all. Here he begins with the first and the most important rule of order for those who would lead the church and, and of course, for all in the church. He begins with saying the son is glorified in all that these men are to do on behalf of Christ. They must remember that they are called to glorify 
the Son. That is the first priority of the church. Furthermore, when the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified in the Son. And that concept is the essence behind Jesus' statements that he and the Father are one. If you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. And to the extent you bring Christ glory, then you are likewise glorifying the Father. And on the other hand, if you reject the Son, likewise you are rejecting the Father. And Jesus himself is at work modeling for the disciples this principle. And he's going to explain later in chapter 17 that he was at work glorifying the Father in the very fact that he was obeying the Father's instructions when he went to the cross. That in itself was an act of, of glorifying the Father. And therefore, it brings glory to the Father anytime the world witnesses Christ's work on behalf of the Father, either in his personal life or through those who are his disciples as we work in his place. Just imagine the uncountable number of times someone has contemplated the plan of salvation in Christ the work of God through Christ on the cross, and in that contemplation has been moved to express thanks and praise to the Father for the gift of salvation in Christ. How many countless times throughout history since the time of the cross has this happened? With each of those moments, God is glorified, the Father is glorified through his Son over and over and over again. And that praise will last an eternity. And then in verse 32, Jesus adds, and if Christ glorifies the Father, then we should expect the Father to respond by glorifying the Son. Likewise, the Father ensures that no name within his creation receives greater glory than the name of his Son. There's, he is the name above all names. So the Father reciprocates in that as the Son obeys the Father to bring him glory, the Father ensures that the creation always sees the Son magnified in the proper place, that is, to be the name above all names. No power will stand against him. No enemy will survive him, as the psalmist says in Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. So the son glorifies the father. The father in turn glorifies the son. And then Jesus adds his final thought that will allow him to transition into the discourse proper into what's following. He says the father is going to begin Jesus's glorification immediately. And that word's key. He's referring to his passion, which paradoxically is a process of the father glorifying the son. So we know what the passion involves. If you've studied it at all, maybe you've seen the movies that have been out around that period of Christ's life. Then clearly we have some sense of just how terrible it was for him. And yet those beatings and scourgings and the nails and the cross and all the rest were God the father bringing glory to God the son. Because without the suffering and the death, Jesus could not fulfill his mission. That's a principle of scripture that I know is difficult to understand for us. It's even harder to accept, especially when it comes our way. But as James said in James 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is saying, which is what Jesus is modeling, is trials are brought by God the Father for our sake as tests of our faith and in the face of repeated testing of our endurance. And what endurance buys us is the potential to bring greater glory to the Father. And in pleasing the Lord, we may receive a greater reward in heaven. No trials, no tests, no tests. No passing of tests, no passing of tests, no endurance in that process, no endurance, no gaining of the spiritual strength by which you please God and receive reward. So at the end of this trail is lacking in nothing. 
Jesus was glorifying the Father by obeying his trials. And he was glorified by his obedience to the Father's commands in that he received a great inheritance, Scripture says. All the creation that God has created became Christ's inheritance as a result of his obedience. Great glory requires great tests of obedience. You cannot receive great things without being tested in great ways. That's the reason why James can paradoxically say, count it all joy when you suffer. It's not Vincent Van Peel. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not wish your troubles away. It is literally an spiritual equation of Scripture that explains how we will receive eternal reward. Through the sufferings and trials God brings upon us so that we may repeat what Christ modeled for us and in doing so bring him glory and ourselves praise. Jesus explains in verse 33 that he was going away, which we understand means he was going to die and then resurrect and then, of course, finally ascend to the Father. So we understand that phrase in hindsight as speaking to all of those events. But what the disciples hear, of course, is I'm going away and they naturally assume he means in some physical sense. So they're not following him. They're not understanding what he wants to do. One day, of course, we know they will be with him where he is going, but not right away. And he can't take them right away because they have a mission to perform in his absence. If they all left with him in the same moment, that's the end of the church. So this gives rise to the second most important rule of order in the church. If the first rule of order is to glorify Christ so that in him the Father might be glorified, the second rule of order is love one another as Christ loved them. You might have noticed already that Jesus is simply reiterating the Old Testament rules for God's people. That is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Out of Deuteronomy, that's the Old Testament standard for the two most important rules of following God. But notice Jesus says now in restating them, he says, I now give you a new commandment. Now, it's not entirely new because of what I just said. Moses had issued a similar command. But in the law, the command was that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus changes that standard and in so doing makes it a new commandment. In the new commandment, you no longer look to yourself for the standard of love. You look to Christ instead as your example. He said to love them as I have loved you. As he will say later in chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So in this new standard of self-sacrificial love, one which Jesus himself modeled for the disciples, you now have the calling card. For all Christians, supernatural love, the kind that only God authors in our heart, given to us by the spirit living in each of us, can cause us to live in ways that stand out in a world that only knows love of self. Obviously, a believer can also live in their flesh rather than in the spirit. And in so doing, they can avoid to show this kind of love. It's certainly within our capacity to do that. But I think we can all agree that's the exception to the rule within the body of Christ. That's not the defining characteristic of Christianity, certainly. The defining characteristic, the one Jesus says will tell everyone that we are Christian, is that we have this kind of self-sacrificial, God-authored love that is atypical for what is common in the world. Have you noticed that truth? I mean, have you ever marveled at the self-sacrificial love of one believer for another? At least at some point in your walk as a believer, you've seen examples, I'm sure, at some point in time. As men or women mature in their walk of faith, they'll experience this desire to make sacrifices of time and treasure and talent, as they say, so that they can 
support the needs of other believers, that they can be sacrificially directed at their needs. And whether you've been on the receiving end of that or on the giving end of that, you've seen Christ's words fulfilled in those moments. That that's how they'll know we're Christian because we have this direction to do things that are not natural in the world around us. And not in just moments, but as a lifestyle. Anyone can fake it for a moment. That's not the criteria. We're talking about something that's sustained and natural because of what God is doing in us. These are the things he promises to the disciples on the eve of his own departure. At this point, of course, everyone in the room around Jesus is totally confused by what he's saying. And we rely on Peter, of course, to always take the first wrong step. And sure enough, here's Peter, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. To give Peter as much slack as we can, he just asks the question everybody else would have asked if they had thought to ask first. Thankfully, they knew they had Peter in the room, so they didn't have to. (laughs) Peter asked, where are you going? And Peter probably expected Jesus to come up with an answer of some faraway exotic place like Tarshish or Ethiopia or something. He was going to say, well, it's, it's a long way, Peter. I'm going to Tarshish. But Jesus doesn't name the place. And of course, he can't because it's not a physical place on earth. And he just adds in a polite, kind, patient way with Peter. He says, look, I can't tell you right now and you can't follow me right now, but you'll be there eventually. Understandably, as we know, Peter still has no understanding of what's going on. So he boldly makes this statement. These are statements that are so classically Peter's statements. He says, I'm ready to follow you right now. In fact, I'll just die for you. All guys like to think this way. And occasionally we even get the chance to say it out loud like he did here. You know, we always tell ourselves that we're going to be one of those guys that will just put our life on the line for someone else. Right. We'll take a bullet for our wives. We'll take a bullet for our children, right? And I think we even fantasize a little bit in a passing way about how brave we'll be under circumstances like that. Or even if we get a chance to run into a burning building and save a stranger. You know, these are moments that sort of define our ego in secret little corners. It's probably natural, right? Because guys are taken in by chivalry and by bravery under those circumstances. And we just see ourselves rising to the occasion whenever these moments come along. I always like to tell men when, I'm, when we're doing marriage counseling that, yeah, you'll take a bullet for your wife, but you won't pick up your underwear. What's up with that? Which one do they want you to do more often? (laughs) But it is a guy thing, and and I'm not saying it's unique to men. Maybe it's just as prevalent women, but I, I tend to think it's probably more a guy thing that we fancy ourselves equal to this task. And that's driving Peter a little bit here, I think. His ego is to say, I'll just die with you. But then when it comes to cash that check, we come up short. Many of us do. And I don't say that for lack of love or sincerity. But it's because there is such a strength of courage required in the face of severe trial like that to actually follow through in these imagined acts of chivalry. We know Peter loved the Lord. I don't think anybody would doubt that. The testimony not only of the gospel shows that, but of course, into the letters, we see that clearly. And his life of obedience, apart from a few moments, testifies to that love. But in the end, he's just a man. And the power of the enemy is great. And the weakness of our flesh is no match for him. So Peter stumbles here. He he's rebuked by Jesus. And it's just a lesson to all of us that when we stand in the kind of pride that Peter so exemplifies, at least in his early life, we're due for a fall because at some point your flesh will be the weaker in the battle. And it's not by the flesh that we win any battle. that has got any spiritual merit. And that's Peter's chief failing. 
at this early point in his walk. He is convinced that it is of himself that he has the strength to manage the mission that Christ has assigned to him, and it will not be. And so when you take someone who is by nature prideful and self-reliant and the Lord is intending to use you, it's going to inevitably be the case that he has to bring you to your knees first so that you finally get to the point of recognizing it's not about me. And I am not capable of doing this, and only God in me can. And then you're useful. Jesus rebukes Peter here, delivering what is some very disheartening news. He says, you're going to deny me. And not just once, but on three separate occasions. And not just over some long period of time, but very soon. In fact, before sunrise. How could Peter have possibly understood what Jesus was talking about? I, I imagine Peter was utterly confused and hurt by what Jesus just said about him in this very public way, at least among the friends that he had. He must have been asking himself, how can I possibly find cause to deny the Lord three times in this very night as we sit here having a very nice Passover meal together? What's going to lead to that? I think the scenario gives you a glimpse of just how suddenly Jesus' circumstances changed in the course of this evening. For the disciples, it must have felt as if the world was just turned upside down in a few hours from where they are now to where they will be at sunrise. In less than 24 hours, everything they know, everything they believed, everything they expect to see happen is just going to be taken away from them. And Peter's denials are just one of a series of moments over these 24 hours that reflect the shock on the system that this event is having. Each disciple faced his own moment like this over the course of the next few days, and not all of them are recorded in Scripture. It took the resurrection and the reappearance of Christ after, to begin to heal them and to give them greater hope on what was really going on. So therefore, keep in mind that the pain and the confusion and all that's about to envelop these men, Jesus, knowing this already, of course, he's set about now in this discourse to prepare them with instructions and with words of encouragement and the like, knowing that their world's going to be rocked really hard here, very shortly, and he wants them to be ready for that. What he's saying in this upper discourse, upper room discourse, is not going to be very meaningful to them in this moment, But in time, they're going to recall these things. And as they recall them, they're going to understand them and they're going to be comforted by them in hindsight. And that's the intent. And so with Peter, you'll notice he won't say much for the rest of the discourse because the intent of Jesus's words is to set him on his heels and to put him in his place. And it accomplishes that. It'll also become a source of great conviction for Peter once it's fulfilled. Now to turn, though, to the encouragement in chapter 14, he begins by expanding on a statement he said to Peter before he rebuked him, which is, you can't go with me now, but one day you will. One day you will go with me. And now in chapter 14, Jesus takes a step toward explaining how that will happen. Verse 1, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Jesus prefaces this revelation with the command, do not be troubled. The disciples, he knows, are about to experience all this sorrow I mentioned. They're going to be very troubled, to say the least, by everything that's about to happen to Christ. But... They need to understand these things that are coming have good purpose in God's plan. And one day they will be able to look back and understand them all in a new and better way. Meanwhile, what will they be assured by? Well, they can be assured that believing in God and believing in Jesus is not misplaced trust or misplaced faith. Because as Jesus dies, the question that will linger in their minds is, 
Did they believe in the wrong guy? Did they believe in a fraud? Who could kill God if, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah? And that shock needs to be countered with an appreciation for why it is the case that Jesus will first die and, more importantly, why he will be gone for a while, which is the essence of this point he's making. Why the departure? Why the separation? Jesus explains the plan in broad strokes here, and it's very short. There's only a few verses. There's other commentary in the New Testament we'll look at here shortly that explains more of it. But here you see Jesus, in his own words, revealing something that's fundamental to the Christian plan for entering eternity. And he begins with his departure. He says, in his father's house, there are many dwelling places. And the term father's house, it's clearly a reference to the heavenly throne room of God the Father. And you can see, if you wanted to, a description of this place, this throne room, in several places in Scripture, particularly in Isaiah or in Revelation. So Jesus says, my father has a house that has many dwelling places, and I'm going to go to that place. And clearly, we know what he's talking about. Jesus is speaking about his ascension again, the moment in which he departs the earth and travels back to where he began. That's why we know that the disciples can't follow him, because only Jesus is going to ascend. He's not going to bring a whole group of people with him when he ascends. Next, Jesus refers to this house as having many rooms, and he says, I'm going up there to prepare rooms for my disciples. Now, this description seems a little odd, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's strange to consider... First of all, that the throne room of God has a floor plan. That seems a bit odd. And then we know Jesus was the son of a carpenter, but it's still far-fetched to imagine that he's literally in the throne room of God with hammer and nails hanging sheetrock. None of this makes any sense. So we know that he's not speaking literally. He's speaking about the fact that heaven is a big place and there's plenty of room. It's plenty big enough to accommodate all of the disciples in a day to come. But even so, why speak in such odd language? Why the need to apply such an interesting metaphor? Well, notice in verse 3, he promises that after time he will come again to receive the church to himself so that where he is, we may be also. So when Jesus comes back at some point from the throne room, having ascended and then at a later point returning, he will come, it says, to retrieve the church and then notice to take them back to the throne room. Where I am, you will be there also. So this is a return for the church to take us back. And that will fulfill his promise to Peter that one day you will be with me. Now, this description is particularly important. It tells us something fundamental to our interpretation. Jesus's description of a return to retrieve the church and then go back with the church into the throne room means he is not speaking about his second coming. That time where Jesus returns to the earth to reign In his kingdom at the second coming, the Lord sets foot on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah. He gathers Israel into her land. He sets up a kingdom on earth centered in Jerusalem where he lives and rules from the seat of David over the earth for a thousand years. That's the second coming of Christ described in Scripture. And yet the description Jesus gives here in John 14, that's a very different sequence. In John 14, he says he's coming from heaven, but then returning to the very same place. And when he comes, he receives the church to that same place rather than remaining on earth with us. He is literally doing something the opposite of the second coming. We can look more closely at the difference when you compare this to what we read in Revelation 19 concerning the second coming. This is the moment in the book of Revelation in which Jesus is returning to set up that kingdom I just described. Revelation 19.11, John wrote, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you know generally about the timeline of these events, you'll know this comes at the very end of a seven-year period called Tribulation on Earth. This is the moment Jesus returns to defeat the forces of Satan and to set up his kingdom. But did you notice some of the key differences? He returns to do battle on Earth. He's accompanied by armies that are clothed in fine white linen, which means these are the saints. These are you and I, the those in the church who travel with Jesus down from heaven to return to the earth. All of this is very much in contrast to what we just studied. In the other case, in John 14, he is returning for us. We are still on the earth. We're not with him. He's not coming to wage battle. And as I said, he returns with us to heaven. So these two moments could not be more different. And therefore, we cannot consider them the same thing. Therefore, the promise Jesus gives to us, to the disciples and to us in John 14 is of another coming that is not the second coming. And if you ask yourself, well, doesn't that mean it's the third coming by definition? No, these terms are not counting, literally like first, second, third. They're just names that have been given to associate certain events. We talk about the first coming or the initial coming of Christ because he walked the earth. We talk about a second coming of Christ because likewise he will walk the earth. But there is another event, a coming of sorts, that does not involve him walking the earth. So we need to study this in more detail. In John 14, he returns, receives the church, and then escorts the church into rooms that he has prepared in the throne room of God. Which brings us back to that odd description that Jesus chose of him preparing rooms for us in heaven. That terminology might sound odd to our ears, but it would have been very familiar to the ears of a first century Jew, like the disciples who were hearing it in the upper room. When they heard those words, they recognized Jesus was taking terminology from the Jewish wedding practice of the day and using it in a new and different form. In Jesus' day, a wedding was a very complex and multi-step affair, lasting many months or years. They began with the marriage being arranged by the father of the groom. The father had a son of marrying age. He would initiate a process of finding a bride for his son. And he often relied on a servant or a representative of the family to appropriate a candidate for the son. The son was never directly involved in any of this process or selecting his wife. He was simply the recipient. He just waited patiently for the father to work out the plan. The father began by dispatching the servant to the home of a prospective bride with the authority. The servant had the authority to strike a marriage deal. And when the servant and the bride's family came to an agreement... Then a price was paid for the bride from the father's estate and gifts were given to her to signal that she was betrothed. And from that moment on, she's betrothed to her groom, though they had never met. And at that stage of the process, had they desired to break it off for some reason, they would require a divorce because they are as much legally married at that point as they will ever be. The only thing that's remaining is to have the marriage consummated to formally complete the meeting of the two. Now, in most cases, a servant would not take the bride back to the groom Immediately. Instead, he would leave her for a while while she prepares for her wedding day to come. Meanwhile, the servant would travel back alone to the master's house and report the success of the deal. But since the marriage had been officially formed, 
You might ask, well, why doesn't the bride just go all the way back now and begin the rest of the marriage with her new husband? The reason relates to Jesus' odd use of words in his promise to the disciples. The marriage ceremony would be on hold, waiting for a suitable dwelling place to be prepared for the new bride. The dwelling place for this new couple would normally have been a room or rooms added on to the father's existing estate, because in this culture, family grew around a patriarch. Brides became part of the groom's family, literally. They became daughters of the groom's father. Each son in that family would welcome a bride into the household of his father's estate. Each son was responsible for building on an addition to the father's estate that was suitable to house this new daughter that this father was bringing in. And of course, then over time, the patriarch's estate would just continue to grow and grow and grow. So while the groom is busy building this addition onto the home, the bride back in her hometown has to sit and wait patiently looking forward to someday in the future when her groom is going to appear to claim her and to finish the wedding process. Now, the son more than likely begins the construction process immediately because he's anxious to see his bride. And the project could take a while, months, maybe even longer than a year. Only when the room was considered ready could he then leave and claim his bride. So the wedding itself waited, everyone waited for the son to prepare the room for the bride. And now you see the full sense of what Jesus was saying in John 14. We know, for example, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is our groom and that the church is his bride. And therefore, it's clear enough that Jesus was making this comparison between the Jewish wedding practice and his return for the church. Since he is the groom and we are the bride, he's gone back to the father's house. He's preparing a room for us, so to speak. And that explains the delay in the separation. He isn't literally building rooms, but by using this terminology, he's emphasizing several ideas at once that were germane to the wedding ceremony. First, he emphasizes the need for the delay in us being with him. The disciples are confused, as we've seen by their questions, as to why they can't accompany Jesus. But they could understand the need for a delay in the process of a Jewish wedding ceremony. They understood the necessity there of some delay. So while Jesus isn't really answering the full question on why there is a delay, at least he's given them something to ex- help explain the need for separation for a time. Secondly, by borrowing from this wedding practice, he implies that the timing of his return will be unpredictable. In the Jewish wedding practice, the bride waited for her groom to appear and retrieve her, but the timing of his return was a complete mystery. The son was only going to be able to get his new bride once the home he was building was ready to be occupied. And the final determination on when the room was ready was the father's alone. The son was expected to work on the room until it met the father's satisfaction. And if the groom was unsure of his own wedding day, well, then certainly the bride was even more in the dark about the whole process. She's miles away in her own home waiting for her groom. She has no idea how long the delay is going to last. There's no way to communicate in real time in that day and age. No texting and emailing and all the rest. So she gets no advance notice of her groom's arrival when that day might come. So knowing again, knowing this practice, you can see that Jesus was intimating that the timing of his return is going to be a mystery to the bride, to the church. We will not know when Jesus will return for us. And it depends entirely on the father's say so, which Jesus himself says, by the way, in Matthew 24, 36, when he says of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. So in a future day. The Lord will return to claim his bride. That day will come as a surprise. 
It will result in the church leaving this world to join Christ in the throne room of God. It will be the day that the bride meets her groom face to face. And Jesus has promised us that this day will come. And he says he's done it so that we will not lose heart, so that we would be encouraged and not troubled by his absence. Though he is gone, one day we will see him. Now, I have not named what this is except to simply describe it out of John 14. It's a special day. We've already said it's not the second coming, but a day when he suddenly appears to claim the church. We need to consult two other well-known passages in the New Testament to flesh out the details on what Jesus is talking about here in very brief form. The first of those is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4.13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Paul is just teaching about the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in John 14. Notice, just like in John 14, Paul refers to Jesus' death and ascension and then says, we will do the same thing. First, at his return for the church, all those who are asleep, meaning they have died by that point, will return with Christ from heaven. Because Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that when you die as a Christian, your spirit enters directly and immediately into the presence of the Lord while your body goes into the grave. There is right now in heaven a cloud, so to speak, of saints in spirit form only, all who have died in Christ since the beginning of the church and all Old Testament saints for that matter. And they exist in full conscious form in the throne room, but without bodies, a state of existence we can't really identify with yet, of course. And that will be their state until this coming of the Lord for the church. Those who have died already and are in spirit form will accompany him as he comes down in this day to come. And then Paul says in Second Corinthians, he says, those who have died in Christ remain with him eternally at that point. So another way to say it is wherever Jesus goes, they go. Then Paul says in First Thessalonians that all his disciples, both those who have previously died, as well as those who remain alive on earth when this day happens, will all meet together in the clouds. This is what Jesus was speaking about when he said in John 14 that he comes to receive the church to himself. He collects believers, not just those who are alive on the earth in the moment, but literally all those in the church from all time are collected together, brought to himself at a point that Paul says is in the clouds, which reflects the language Jesus selected in John 14 when he says, I will receive you to myself. A very important word. It reflects that we come to where he is. He doesn't come all the way to where we are. And then from that point, we are all escorted back into heaven. Notice Paul says in First Thessalonians 4:17, so we shall always be with the Lord. And then Paul interestingly finishes with words similar to the ones Jesus began with. He says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the first passage. The second passage from Paul is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul reveals another important detail of this moment, one that's lacking so far in our understanding, one that Jesus didn't mention. In 1 Corinthians 15:50, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit 
the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul reminds us in this passage that the perishable, dying, corrupt flesh that is currently our bodies cannot enter into the pure, incorruptible, eternal realm God has prepared. And here's why, as Paul explains it. How can something that does not last forever inherit something that will last forever? If your inheritance outlives you, you didn't inherit it. You just held on to it for a little while. Until your next person inherited it, right? No, but the inheritance we're promised will last an eternity, and therefore we will last an eternity. Since we are assured that we must share in Christ's eternal inheritance, we must, by definition, dispense with these mortal bodies and receive ones that last an eternity if we are to see the promise of Christ fulfilled in having eternal inheritance. And in their place, as Paul says, we will receive eternal, incorruptible, immortal bodies. Paul says that when the trumpet sounds to announce the Lord's return, by the way, did you notice back in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul said that it is associated with a trumpet. Then the church receives new bodies. Those believers who return with Christ in that spirit form I mentioned earlier will be the very first to receive their new glorified physical body, one that will accompany their spirit for eternity. Paul says on top of that, not all believers will need to die in order to reach that state of incorruptible form. Those who are alive on earth in the day of this coming of the Lord will be transformed instantly into new bodies. Do no need to pass go. Just go from life to life, old life to new life. Paul says not all believers will sleep, meaning not all will die, but all will be changed. And he says it happens almost instantaneously following those who went before us. He uses the word twinkling or in English it's twinkling of an eye. That's really a, a euphemism. It's translation of a word atmos in Greek. We get the word Adam from the same root. So atmos, Adam, the word Adam just means the smallest indivisible particle. Or so we thought when we named those particles atoms till we figured out later they could be divided further, but never mind. Adam means the smallest thing that cannot be divided further. And Paul uses that same term in describing the time period of this change. Such a small period of time, it could not even be divided more if we tried. So literally instantaneously. Once that has happened, then this entire group of saints in incorruptible bodily form go with Christ back to heaven into the throne room. This important moment that we've now covered well from several angles goes by several names, as you probably know. Jesus himself never names it, simply referring to it here as his return and implying it is the return of the groom for the bride. Based on the text of John 14 and on 1 Thessalonians 4, we could just use the term coming of the Lord. In fact, whenever the phrase the coming of the Lord, or in some cases the Lord's coming, is used in the New Testament, and particularly in the epistles, it is always a reference to this event, this event of Jesus returning for the church. It is never, the term the coming of the Lord, or the term the Lord's coming, is never used in the New Testament to describe the second coming of Christ. So we could just call it the coming of the Lord, at the risk of confusing other Christians who have not done enough study to know the difference. Or, based perhaps on 1 Corinthians 15, we could call this moment the resurrection. For that is, in fact, exactly what it is. This is the resurrection day of the church. So we can say that there is the second coming and the resurrection. 
This is the day when all church saints receive their eternal bodies. But despite those two very valid and reasonable options, uh, as you probably know, there's another label that has become the dominant term describing the day of the Lord's return. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, the first passage I read. Paul wrote there again in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. In the Greek, which Paul wrote, the term caught up is the word harpazo. When Jerome translated the Bible from its original Greek into the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, the word harpazo became rapturo in Latin. And from the word rapturo, you move into English with the word rapture. So at this moment, and probably forevermore, the term that the church has favored is the rapture, the moment when the Lord returns to catch up, in the past tense, caught up the church to himself. It is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in John 14, and an assurance that we should be comforted. For those in the church, and there are certainly those out there who would say that the rapture is a figment of someone's imagination, a false teaching, etc., if you encounter someone of that sort, you uh, might ask them when they believe that resurrection is going to take place or if they believe in a bodily resurrection. Almost certainly they will say they do if they are Christian. And now you're going somewhere. Now you just have to settle on when they think that happens. And in some cases, I've found people coming back to believe in the rapture without realizing they believe in the rapture. Jesus is speaking of these things to the disciples in the upper room to reassure them that not all is lost simply because he's going to depart without them. Like a groom preparing rooms for his bride in his father's house, there will be a day of joy at the end of the waiting. It's a, a wait that's of necessity, and it will one day come to a completion. We'll be reunited. Notice in verse 4, at the end of the first passage I read in John 14, Jesus says, these men knew where he was going. And I don't think Jesus was saying these men were necessarily understanding him in the moment, because it's pretty clear they don't. Jesus means they have all the information they need to understand what he's saying and to figure out where he's going. And though they haven't put the pieces together yet, in the proper time, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they're going to put the pieces together. How do we know that? Well, the apostles themselves wrote about this moment. Paul wasn't in the room at the time, but the point is if Paul could understand these things and reveal them, I'm sure the other apostles came to that understanding in time. And as that understanding grows in the church, comfort is the result. What an irony that so many Christians debate or or uh, argue over the, the essence of, of what Jesus has just taught right now, and in so doing, create a lot of tension and the opposite of comfort, when in fact the teaching was all about comfort. Just as we know we can receive comfort knowing that the Lord has promised to unite all the church saints in a single moment, then we should also understand that this moment is imminent. It's not of comfort if it's not imminent. At any time, the Lord could return to fulfill this pledge, just like the bride who did not know when the groom might show up. Therefore, the command of Scripture is always be ready for it. A lot of Christians enjoy knowing about this, but the Lord intended us to know of it and to understand its imminent nature so that we would act accordingly. And he told one parable, perhaps more than any other I can think of, that emphasizes the importance of this. In Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, 
Remember the shouts and the archangel shouts and then the trumpet. So this is again picturing the return of Christ for the church. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will be not be enough for us and you too. go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. But while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, in this particular parable, Jesus is highlighting a contrast between those who are his and those who are not. Though clearly those who are not have somehow come to believe that they are closer than they truly are in the faith. But to the last line, be alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. That's spoken to us. That's spoken to the church. That even for those within the church need to be ready as that bride was intended to be. In the, in the way the wedding was practiced, in the time that, inter, that intervened between the betrothal and the eventual claiming of the bride. That time of maybe months or more. The bride was always to be ready. She literally lived every day in her wedding gown. She was constantly being attended to by her wedding maids who were making sure she was always ready, packed and ready, clean, anointed with oil, ready to go. And every day that ritual started up again. Paul and particularly Peter draws from that picture to remind the church we are to be a spotless bride prepared for her groom. Our cleanliness is in the sense of a holy living as opposed to the physical cleanliness of our body. But the parallels just continue to flow between the comparison of the wedding to the rapture. So now Jesus is teaching on this important moment. And once again, he's interrupted by a question that reveals the disciples lack of understanding. This time it's it's left to Thomas and Philip, since Peter is still smarting from the earlier moment and not apparently not looking forward to any more of the same. So verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So first we have Thomas's interruption. He asks, how are we going to follow you if you don't tell us how we're going to get there? You've know, you got to show us the way. That just tells us that they're still hearing everything he says in earthly terms. They're thinking that he's about to take an earthly trip in some mysterious direction to some strange place and not tell them where he's going. And then say, but you can come later. And none of it adds up. Because if we don't know where you're going and you don't tell us how to get there, how are we ever going to find you? Don't look down on these guys too much, though. Christians are prone to making the same mistake even today. Believers often read the commands of Christ from Scripture with a temporal or earthly filter, forgetting that most of what he says is related to the eternal kingdom. That's where you get Christians willing to believe false heretical teachings like the prosperity gospel when men who have evil hearts and evil intentions come and tell you that God wants you to be rich, and oh, here's a verse that proves it. When you hear that verse with earthly filters, it can seem to say what the guy is saying it says. 
when you remove those filters, see them truly in a spiritual domain, you realize that what they're doing with the text is purely manipulative and has nothing to do with the true intent. Here's a classic example of the apostles making that very same mistake. Because he's been talking about spiritual movements and spiritual outcomes, and they're only hearing it as physical. True to form, Jesus takes Thomas's question and he just redirects it to that spiritual context. When Thomas asks to know the way to follow Jesus, Jesus turns around and says, I'm not interested in physical travel. I'm concerned about your spiritual progress. And in doing so, he issues probably one of the best known, most quoted statements of Jesus's entire ministry. He says he is the way and the truth and the life. Remember, he had just said he was going to the father's house, which is what prompted Thomas to say, show us the way there. To which Jesus responds, if you want to find your way to the father's house, you only have to look at me. Jesus is the way to the father because he is the truth about the father and he is the life giver according to the father's direction. You can't find the father if you don't know who he is or how he may be found. So you need the truth to know these things. You need the life in order to be able to survive and stand in his presence. So he says, you won't know the father if you don't know me. Jesus is the one who has spoken for the true living God. He is the one who gives us the truth about the Father's expectations. And in that sense, he is the truth and he is the one and only spokesman of the Father. And you can't make your way to the Father if you can't stand in his presence. I mean, think about the irony. What if it were possible that through some other means we might discover, quote, a way to the Father. But because we haven't gone through Christ to get there, the moment you stand in the Father's presence, you're dead. To what good was the travel, so to speak, right? The holiness and the justice of God requires that we must stand in his presence in righteousness. Else we don't stand at all. And that eternal life comes only through the son. A life that Christ offers without which no one will see the father. Then lastly, notice Jesus doesn't say he shows us the way. He says he is the way. He is the one and only way a person may see heaven. The disciples want a roadmap to heaven. Jesus is effectively telling them, well, then just follow me. In verse 7, Jesus tells the disciples, you know, you've already come to know the Father because you've been here with me. You've known me. The start of that sentence actually should probably not be translated if. If yours says if you have known me, he's not suggesting they don't know him. That word behind the word if could have just as easily been translated since. And it makes more sense in this case. Since they have known Jesus, they know the Father. Therefore, from now on, the disciples should not go around saying, show us the Father. From now on, they should go around saying, we know the Father. In the sense that we know Christ. And then now it's Philip's turn. He pipes up and he asks him, well, look, since we're talking about the father, why don't you just show him to us now? We won't ask any more than that. He's bargaining. It's another typical request of an immature believer. As you draw near to Christ in initial stages, it's not uncommon to yearn for something demonstrative that shows you you've come to God. You've heard the news of the gospel. Someone's taught you and you felt inclination to accept it. And you have. But now you want a miracle. Now you want a display. Now you want some proof. Can you just give me something that shows me I have, in fact, come to the God that I've been seeking? And that kind of desire can sometimes entrap babes in Christ in some very unhealthy and unbiblical practices, because there's always a comment out there ready to try to give you what you want, as long as there's some kind of price paid in return. But Jesus tells Philip, and I think by extension all Christians, that this is wrong. In fact, he issues a pretty strong rebuke here if you read the words properly. He says, if you've come to know me, then you already have what you're asking for. You already know the Father. To the disciples, Jesus could say this because they had seen Jesus, obviously, in the flesh. For us today, we've come to know the Father as much as anyone can know him through what God has revealed to us through the word of God and through the spirit indwelling us. 
So we can't say to Christ or to anyone, show us the father. In other words, show us more because there isn't any more. Not now, not in the current state. God is not at work presenting himself through any other means, according to Hebrews one, than through his son. And his son today is revealed to us by his word and then through the spirit living in us. That's the height of the revelation we have. And it's more than sufficient. It's a central principle of Christian theology. There is nothing more to be revealed of the father than what has already been revealed in Christ. So when you seek for something beyond the word of God, you're repeating the mistake of Philip and someone's going to try to fill that need for you. And they're going to do it in a way that's unbiblical. We have movements in the church that have sprung up over the last centuries that are directed exactly at trying to fill that unhealthy, immature need. Finally, and to end tonight, Jesus reminds the disciples of a truth that he has already spoken and will speak again. He says, Jesus and the father are one. Jesus is in the father and the father is in the son and the father abides in Jesus. And that's the reason Jesus is able to perform all the miraculous works that he performs. So if you can't take the word of God as sufficient proof of who Jesus is, then at least believe in him for the testimony of the miraculous works that he did. For as he did miracles of the kind that are reported in the Gospels, they were a self-evident proof God was working in him. For there would have been no other way for him to accomplish the things he was doing. And that word abiding, it's a really interesting word, and it's one that will play a prominent role in the next chapter of this Gospel. It's a word that expresses how each person in this relationship retains a unique identity while at the same time being united. Jesus and the Father were united, yet distinct. Jesus abiding in the Father, the Father abiding in the Son. Meanwhile, Jesus will use the rest of this chapter to instruct the disciples on how to minister to one another in his absence by his Holy Spirit, which then leads him into the famous chapter 15 abiding chapter of John's Gospel. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for this encouragement to know that at any moment, You may tell your son that the time is right and that the bride may be claimed and in an instant father will be in the presence of our Lord. And what an encouragement it is already to know that for those of our uh, those loved ones or friends we know who have passed on before us, that not only are they safe and enjoy in your presence now, but we will set eyes upon them again in the clouds. What an incredible moment that will be, Father, to not only be there ourselves and to see the Lord of the universe, but then also to be reunited with so many who have gone. The joy will be overwhelming, we know. That is the love that you have for us, Father, and that is the promise you've given us in the word. Let it be a promise we rest in, and even in our darkest days, that in the things of this world that trouble us, we can look to that day and forget these troubles, at least as much as we can. We pray for these things, Father. We pray thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.